Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. It is still July, but I'm interrupting our Christmas in July celebration to share some really exciting news with you. First, I do want to apologize if my voice sounds a little scratchy these days. Like so many, I'm just recovering from a bout of COVID. So hopefully I can make my way through and share this exciting news. As many of you know, I am working with the wonderful folks at Pen and Sword Books to bring my dream of the tutors by the numbers to reality. And it's happening. I've submitted my initial manuscript, getting good feedback. I'm getting some ideas for the cover that are absolutely gorgeous. And I'm just so excited to talk about this project with you. And so what I thought I would do is occasionally take advantage of the opportunity to speak with so many of you great supporters and let you know what's going on and what some of the chapters maybe tease you a little bit about some of the exciting content and some of the stories and statistics that will show up in the Tutors by the Numbers. So I'm going to start with chapter one. Seems like a good place to start, as uh, Maria would say in The Sound of Music. But how was it that Henry Tudor became the King of England? He was probably the least likely man, not even in England, because prior to his defeating Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, Henry Tudor had spent 14 years in political exile as pretty much an enemy of the state. He had been in France and in Brittany, sometimes as a favored guest, sometimes almost as a prisoner. A couple of times he had almost been captured and turned over to Edward IV over that period of time. And The people in England, the people at the English court didn't really know him. He'd been gone for so long. And even before he left for France and Britain at age 14, he spent almost no time in the English court. In fact, it's thought he never even spent a night there. So he was certainly a total unknown. He was a political exile. He shows up, he lands at Mills Bay with sort of a ragtag army of French mercenaries, some disaffected supporters of Edward IV, some supporters of the Lancastrian cause, the strong support of his uncle Jasper Tudor. And then he just plans to pick up support along the way for his cause, a man that almost nobody knew. Even so, he managed to march through Wales and then into England and pick up support, and eventually to be prepared to meet Richard III at Bosworth Field. Now, Richard III wasn't just the anointed king on the throne at the time. Richard was a brilliant military strategist. He had been the right-hand man of his brother, Edward IV, in battle, and had been an extraordinary warrior. And so the odds of Richard III at the head of the royal army versus Henry VII, who'd spent 14 years in exile. He hadn't been fitted for the latest and greatest armor. He had not been trained in fighting or how to ride a horse or any of the military needs that he would have. He'd just been trying to stay alive. 
And that was the army that faced off against the very well-trained, very well-equipped royal army of Richard III. And yet, unexpectedly, the forces of Henry Tudor actually won the day. And Richard III, who charged right at Henry in an attempt to sort of cut off the head of the rebel army and end it quickly, was killed. We know from the fact that his remains were found later that his body was treated in a very um, disrespectful way after his death. He was killed, and Henry Tudor, uh, against all odds, emerged as the King of England. And with all that, that was the easy part, because now he was king, he had to somehow keep the throne. Now, the throne of England had experienced a number of, let's say, temporary residents over the past 50 years. Henry VI had held the throne for a while, actually quite a while, but then he had been defeated by the forces of Edward IV. Who were then defeated by the forces of Henry VI, then Henry VI was reinstated, and then those forces were defeated again by the forces of Edward IV, and Edward IV was reinstated. Then Edward V, the young king, who was only 12, ruled briefly. He was proclaimed king, but as you may remember, never crowned, because instead, the man crowned was his uncle, Richard III. Richard III had been on the throne just two years when Henry Tudor landed at Bosworth. So the last several residents of the throne had been forced off, sometimes more than once in the case of Henry VI. And so it was almost as, okay, now here's Henry Tudor, and he'll be on the throne for a while, just waiting for the next guy to come and force him off and take the throne from him. There was no reason at all to believe that he would be any better equipped to hold on to the throne. In fact, Given his distant claim to the throne, which was also questioned by some people since he came through a woman's line and through the third wife's line, and the third wife was initially the mistress, and initially the Beauforts were illegitimate, there were all kinds of questions about Henry Tudor's claim to the throne. And that tentative claim made it even less likely that he would succeed, that he would be able to hold on to the throne and accomplish what hadn't been done in more than 100 years, which was for a king to successfully and peacefully pass the throne to his son. That hadn't happened since Henry IV died and passed the throne to Henry V. So it had been more than 100 years. So how is it that Henry Tudor managed to accomplish that? And I think that one of the ways he was able to sell himself as the rightful king of England and sell his family, this unknown family, as a new and lasting dynasty, one that would last for more than a hundred years, is by settling on a narrative that he leaned all the way into that was based on the number one. And so the number one is the first number that I really consider in the Tudors by the numbers. So let's imagine ourselves decades after Henry VII's reign. Let's imagine ourselves in London, in the theater, and it's 1592. So we're late in the reign of Elizabeth I, who, of course, would turn out to be the final tutor 
And honestly, by 1592, people were pretty clear about the fact Elizabeth was not going to have any children at this point, and that the Tudors would eventually end, which they would do in about 11 years in 1603. But in any case, it's 1592. We're at the theater, and we're about to see a play performed by At that time, a new and -and up-and-coming playwright, William Shakespeare. But even though he was new, the story was not new to us. It was the story of Henry VI. And this was a story that was told regularly at the theater. So we know the storyline, but I want to look really carefully at one of the scenes in Shakespeare's version. So we see a scene where there's a fight between Richard Plantagenet who might be better known to us as Richard, the Duke of York, and the Earl of Somerset, who was a strong supporter of Henry VI and the Lancastrians. So they're having this argument, and in the play, it sort of spills out into the garden. And in that space, Plantagenet says, and I'm going to quote from the play, Let him that is a true-born gentleman and stands upon the honor of his birth If he suppose that I have pleaded truth from off this briar, pluck a white rose with me. So he has staked his claim for the throne, and he is saying, look, everybody who agrees with me, take a white rose from off this lovely rose bush. Then Somerset replies, Let him that is no coward nor no flatterer, but dare maintain the party of the truth, pluck a red rose from off this thorn with me. So then all their friends and supporters jump in and start plucking red and white roses and taking sides. And as the scene ends, the two men speak into reality an idea of a war between roses. So Somerset says, And thou shalt find us ready for thee still, and know us by these colors for thy foes. For these, my friends, in spite of thee, shall wear. And Plantagenet, or York, replies, And by my soul this pale and angry rose is cognizance, of my blood-drinking hate, will I forever and my faction wear, until it wither with me to my grave or flourish to the height of my decree. Now, of course, that's not really what happened. We know the battle didn't start in a garden with men plucking roses. But the notion of the White Rose of York and the Red Rose of Lancaster is such an essential part of the story that Henry VII invented that it had taken full hold by the end of Elizabeth's reign, and actually quite a bit earlier. So let's talk just a little bit about how this happened. And some of you know that I'm bordering on obsessed, possibly I am obsessed, with this idea of the Tudor Rose of the coming together of the white rose and the red rose and the forming of this Tudor rose, which was one of the greatest exercises of branding. That Tudor rose brand was one of the most brilliant examples of that, I think, in all of history. I mean, Henry came up with a symbol for his brand, 
the red rose and the white rose coming together, that was so easy to understand, so clear in its composition, and then he stamped it everywhere. The problem is, he kind of made up a story to go along with it. In fact, it is true that Edward IV, for example, of the Yorkist line, was associated with the White Rose. Now, when Edward IV became king, he devised this absolutely beautiful ancestral role, and it shows his ancestry. It sort of shows him, you know, descending directly from God and Adam, because his claim to the throne wasn't quite as clear as he would have liked. So he reinvents it in some really interesting ways. I had the opportunity to see this absolutely gorgeous document um, or, or artifact when it was on display at Folger Shakespeare Library, and it was just, it just takes your breath away. It's so beautiful. And you will see white roses all over it. There are other emblems as well. But certainly the idea of the white rose and the family of York, especially Edward IV, did make sense. And that was the part of Henry Tudor's story that does hold up. It's the red rose part that's quite a bit more problematic because the Lancastrians do not have a history of using red roses as their emblem. It's possible that Henry Bolingbroke, way back in the days before he forced Richard II off the throne in 1399, so prior to that, when he was just Henry Bolingbroke, he may have used crimson and gold roses as part of his emblem. There's some evidence of that, but there really isn't a consistent red rose traveling through the House of Lancaster, as Henry Tudor would have you believe. In fact, even Henry Tudor himself was really more attracted to the red dragon, the Welsh dragon of Calwater, and he actually fought under that emblem. That was the emblem he was flying when he fought at Bosworth. That was the emblem, the red dragon that he took after his victory to St. Paul's Cathedral and laid on the altar to demonstrate his great victory and his gratitude to God for helping him prevail. That was all about the red dragon. It wasn't till after Bosworth that he came up with this idea of the red rose. And when he came up with it, he got really excited, and you will see portraits of him holding a red rose. You will see red roses on some of his documents. He, once he became king, now was the owner of a whole bunch of other official documents, and there is some thought he may have added some red roses in some early examples of photoshopping to some of the earlier Lancastrian documents. But in any case, he settled on this emblem, which although it had not really represented the Lancastrian cause over the years, did work with the narrative he was creating. His narrative was, there was a one family, the York family, they had a rose. There was the other family, the Lancastrian family, they had a rose. And now, by marrying Elizabeth of York, I, Henry Tudor, am bringing these together and forming the Tudor rose, which brings together all of the conflicts over the last 50 plus years and resolves them. So there is no reason for anyone else to appear 
and challenge Henry Tudor for the throne. He is telling you he has solved the problem. He has brought these two families together. Now, of course, when we look at what's really going on in these years of battles in the second half of the 15th century, it's about so many things. And there are so many people who change sides and who come from the same family and are fighting on different sides. It's not really a clean battle. But Henry makes it appear that way, that there are two sides, that they are both represented by roses, and that he has solved the problem by marrying Elizabeth of York. Then he accomplishes something really quite extraordinary because he puts all his eggs in one basket, so to speak, and decides that when his son is born, after he marries Elizabeth of York, when his son is born, that son will epitomize the Tudor Rose. And because he knows it's going to be a son and he knows it's going to name him Arthur, it will also epitomize the reincarnation of King Arthur of legend. And so he takes Elizabeth of York and they go to Winchester, which is a legendary home of King Arthur associated with the legend of King Arthur. And much to his delight, and I guess to his credit, Elizabeth does have a son. So baby Arthur is born, he is a healthy boy, he survives, and he is celebrated at his birth with poetry that specifically calls to mind the red rose and the white, to see them combined is my delight. And Arthur literally represents that Tudor rose and the future of the dynasty. Now, we know that Henry VII still isn't finished because there are rebellions that last practically throughout his entire reign. He has two particular rebels who actually claim to be Yorkists, as it turns out, who challenge him quite seriously with international support for the throne. And this wonderful manifestation and embodiment of his success and his future, Prince Arthur dies before the king does. He does not grow up to be the Tudor Rose. In fact, it's Henry VII's second son, Henry VIII, who does grow up to be the Tudor Rose. And when we look at Henry VIII's coronation, and there are a couple of documents that are particularly interesting as we look at. One is Thomas More's over-the-top praise of Henry VIII. Now, at the time, Thomas More may have been very comfortable praising Henry VIII, because at the time, as we know, Henry VIII, as a very young man and brand new king, was very loyal to the Pope and to the church. It took quite a while for him to break away. So early on, Thomas More was probably a little fair in his celebration of the king. But in this glorious poem and document he writes, it is decorated with roses of red and white and the Tudor rose, which symbolizes Henry VIII. And another um, celebration of the coronation, Henry, of course, quickly marries Catherine of Aragon, who's been in the country since Prince Arthur died after their marriage. And so he marries her and the two of them are crowned together and in a woodcut celebrating the coronation 
of the new king and queen, King Henry and Queen Catherine. Over Catherine's head is her symbol of the pomegranate, and over Henry's head is the Tudor rose. And there are descriptions of Henry VII and Henry VIII going on progresses and sort of a mechanical way. It's hard to describe how it happens, but there is a union of a white rose and a red rose to form a Tudor rose. So this idea, this emblem, this narrative permeates the reigns of Henry VII and then Henry VIII. And of course, the final Tudor rose is Elizabeth I. And she too really celebrates the great Englishness of her heritage. And in her coronation pageantry, the Tudor rose is prominently displayed and it is prominently displayed in many portraits of Elizabeth I, where you will see the Tudor rose, sometimes a crown Tudor rose, in her portraiture. So she, too, really celebrates that idea of the Tudors and the Tudor rose. And of course, by the end of her reign, and that's where we, you know, we're looking at that play of Shakespeare, that's toward the end of Elizabeth's reign. And it is so ingrained in people's minds that you have these two symbols, the red rose and the white rose. And then, of course, They come together and form the Tudors. And by that time, by 1592, they've made quite a success of it. And in fact, Elizabeth remains on the throne until 1603. So I think that number one is so important to Henry Tudor when he was faced with not just the task of defeating Richard III and the royal army, this brilliant military strategist and his royal army, at Bosworth, his work, his real work was ahead, which was convincing the country that he should be the king and convincing rebels that they should not bother him. Now, he wasn't 100% successful in that because rebels still did come and challenge him, but they were not successful. They were not able, despite the international support they got, they were not able to convince the people of England to rise up against Henry VII. And so Henry VII was able to maintain his hold on the English throne. And when he died in 1509, his son, Prince Henry, was just a few weeks shy of his 18th birthday. So he could take the throne undisputed to great celebrations for the first time since Henry V had done so. It was really a new era, the Tudor era. And that narrative, Henry Tudor's narrative about the one Tudor rose and he himself being the one person who could solve the battles and end these wars, what we now call the Wars of the Roses, You could say that by the end of the reign of Henry VII, the Wars of the Roses were over. And that one symbol, that one narrative, that one rose that now represents, as much as any other symbol, England and English royalty. It is on money. It is on pubs. It is carved into buildings. 
it is on the coronation regalia to this day. The Tudor rose, which is now sometimes called the English rose, but it's still that red and white Tudor rose, really has come to represent much more than Henry VII could have imagined. But he started it by committing fully to the number one, one narrative, one rightful claimant to the throne, and more than anything, one rose. Well, there are a lot more numbers that Henry VII uses to build his dynasty, but I think that number one is probably the most important and is certainly one of my favorites to talk about. So thank you for allowing me to share some of the tutors by the numbers with you to get you excited to learn more. I am also happy to say that I will put in the show notes, I wrote an article for the Historian's Magazine about the Tudor Rose, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about that amazing symbol and how it's been used throughout history. So thank you. We'll have some other little tidbits from the book coming up. I can't wait to share more with you. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I really appreciate your listening. If you could take a moment to share the podcast with a friend and maybe leave a rating, I'd really appreciate it. Have a great day and let's keep shaking up history together. Together.